So for those who haven't been with us, we're doing a study of the book of Daniel, and we're coming to chapter 9. Um, you can go back and listen to the previous eight chapters or 14 sermons or whatever it is by now, if, if you would like to. Um, and I just want to, I, I want us to remember that as we're interpreting the book further and further, it seems to get more and more obscure if you would just come to the chapter on its own. But if you've been building systematically through the book, suddenly you start realizing, oh, this connects to that, this connects to that, this connects to that, and, and, and you're not left uh, guessing that much. So it is important to remember what did we see last week. Jesus is the archetype. He's the forerunner. He's the foreshadowing of the kingdom of God, whatever happens to Jesus in, also happens in some way to his followers. So you die and you're raised with him, for example, which is symbolized in baptism. We're seated with him in heavenly places. And so the glorious future, the kingdom of God, is to some degree present and potentially present whenever a believer in Jesus is in the room. Now we know that was true whenever Jesus was in the room, but we've seen in Daniel chapter 7 and then in chapter 8 that that uh, transfers to his people. So his people reign with him, in him, serve like him, minister for him, and represent him. And then we encountered uh, this archetype of the Antichrist. We introduced to a recurring historical phenomenon. And so, I mean, there, there are a couple of antichrist type archetypes babel becomes babylon you know goes all the way from genesis right through to revelation as like this empire that is anti-god um, and so also we find key persons so the person of pharaoh for example but in this one historical person called antiochus the fourth we have a particular set and and what we have then is many antichrists, according to the New Testament. Now, antichrist wasn't a word used in the book of Daniel. We're kind of looking a little bit, we're just doing a recap. So we took the thought forward. 1 John chapter 2, many antichrists are coming. Even now, there have been many that have come. This is how we know it is the end or the last hour. For the archetype or the antichrist, He's exploiting people to gain power and influence. He uses flattery, deception, broken alliances before ultimately establishing uh, direct control. Uses the power of false religion and syncretism, economic coercion and exclusion. So the muscle of trade and commerce and ultimately enforces its way through military might. Now, this represents just about every single human empire. And so these things that arise out of the seething seas of humanity become the beasts because they no longer representing the image of God and his governance on the earth. It's the lost image of God. And so humanity, the highest compliment, as it were, the kingdom of God brings is to restore our humanity, our human image, which is in the image of God. So um, that brings us to Daniel chapter 9. Now it's quite a long reading, and I'm going to ask Mike if he will come up 
and uh, just give us in Lingala, which is one of the languages of his home country, uh, the, some of the punchline scriptures, which is uh, where this prayer reaches its final point. I'll put it in English on the background as he reads. Um, Daniel chapter 9, 17 to 19. Sikayo, nzambe na yoka lo sambo pe, mabonde li nangai, osali na yo. Puna lo kum na yonkolo, tala na miso ya, yangolo e sika na yo, tabule oyo e baby. Nzambe na ngai, tefisa nga litoi na yonpe yoka ngai na makuki. Fongala miso diope mwona kubebi sa ya bisika na bisope ya engomba oyo pona polamu na yon. Ngai na zali kubele la kombo na yon. Ezali te pona tuzali sembo kasi ezali nde pona mawa ma mwonene na yon. Nde tuzali kubele la yon. Nkolo yoka. Nkolo limbisa. Nkolo yoka na bokeki. Sala kubumelate. Pona lokumu na yo. Kombo na yo moko nzambe na ngayi. Pemba tek. Zali kubele la kombo na yo. Pona bulamu ya ingomba pe ya bato na yo. Thank you, Mike. You just lift a leg so that we can see he's got the socks to match. Um. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent. Remember, this is the Medo-Persian. He's probably known as Darius as his Mede title um, and his Persian title, his Cyrus. Um, and, you know, you can, you know, kings often had multiple titles. Um, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your, your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people in the land. Lord... You are righteous, but this day we are covered in shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries uh, where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept his laws, uh, the, the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, 
the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we sinned against you. You fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord is righteous in everything he does. By the way, the Lord did take about 400 years. So if that's not hesitating, it gives you an idea of God's timeline. For the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, and we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, who made yourself a name that endures to this day. We have sinned. We have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. And then what Mike read, now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant for your sake, Lord. Look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see this, the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act for your sake, my God. Do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill. While I was still in prayer, the Gabriel, Gabriel, the man I'd seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out which I have come to tell you. For you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word, understand the vision. Seventy sevens. In Hebrew, that just also means 70 weeks. Could be lovely and ambiguous. Are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy one or anoint the most holy place. No one understands this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be Seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. 
It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. Desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So, of course, we all know what's going on. <laughs> Those last four verses, um, they have been probably some of the most controversially interpreted verses. And it, in essence, because of the mystery associated, one of the principles of interpretation is don't take the verses laden with mystery and then make them govern the verses that are much more obvious. So a much more obvious verse, for example, comes from Jesus where he says, nobody knows the hour or the day. And so when we come to this, you know, you kind of need to be careful that you're not led along a path where you think, in spite of all of human history, I am going to calculate, crack the Da Vinci Code and know what the 77s and all the rest of it mean and when it's going to happen. And, and then people can live it up and party and the day before they can all turn to Jesus and we'll be fine and go to heaven. That is never how the Bible pictures it happening. If people are living and giving in marriage and doing their own thing, they will be very surprised the day Jesus comes. Like literally... That is one of the most clear themes. So this is not given for us to try and crack the code of history. So what is it given for? I'm glad you're wondering. First of all, I want to take some time on Daniel's famous prayer. It's his most famous prayer. And then we're going to look at the remarkable answer, which includes some of these uh, very challenging uh, interpretive tasks. So Daniel has been studying the scriptures that were there during his day. So somehow from uh, the land of Judah, the scrolls and the texts have made their way. And Daniel, he's now very advanced in years, has been saturating himself in the word of God. And he has been holding on to a promise. We are familiar with Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, give you hope and a future. By the way, this is Gen Z's favorite verse. Like they know this verse better than John 3.16. It's true. It shows how hopeless things are feeling when that becomes your, as it were, go-to the verse before says this, when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. So Daniel's been holding on to hope, holding on to the God who has planned good things. 
And there's this awareness of the 70 years. And so he's thinking, is this literal? Well, I don't want to die guessing. <laughs> I'd much rather start praying. And the truth is, he's been like in Scripture. It, this is a prayer prompted by this text. But it's also a prayer shaped by like literally a truckload of Scripture. And our prayers are never more effective than when they align with the Word of God. So Daniel's been taking the Word of God, taking the Word of God. Why is this? Because prayer is not about getting God to do what we want. His Word isn't a lever that we pull that God must then obey. That is like treating the Bible like witchcraft. So, you know, people say, find a promise, claim it, demand it, confess it, possess it, blab it, grab it. No, no, no. You understand the heart of God and you surrender to the text. The text doesn't surrender to you. So what we want to do is align our prayer with his word. And so the entire prayer is shaped literally Every single phrase, if you get a cross-reference Bible, has an Old Testament reference point. There isn't a verse that doesn't have two or three. The Scripture, the Word of God, living in him, begins to pray. He includes Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Psalms, Isaiah, Amos, Jeremiah, and Lamentations. And there's multiple other allusions as well. He's been taking time to let God's word get inside of him. Jesus said it this way. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish. It'll be given to you. John 15 and verse 7. So Daniel's prayer is just triggered by and then shaped and formed by the word of God. We're not going to have time to do a verse-by-verse verse exegesis, so I'm giving you some of the headline observations. The second thing is that this prayer upholds the justice, the goodness, the righteousness, and the mercy of God. He describes God as great and awesome. I know some of the translations, great and terrible, that's a terrible translation. Um, he describes God as covenant-keeping, righteous, four times. You're righteous, you're righteous. Merciful, twice. Forgiving, twice. And he says, you're a God who keeps your word, even when it's hard and painful for everyone concerned. You do not let go of your word. Even if that word is judgment, what we have experienced is you keeping your promises. The fact that we lost our city, we lost our temple, is because you kept your promise. Not because your promise has failed. We lost it because you are faithful. You see, God is not going to be dictated to by his people. He's going to be dictated to by his own nature and character, which is completely free and righteous and good. Now, I know this is a bit hectic, 
But this is what Daniel discovers as he reads the text. He insists on three things, this great and awesome God, infinite power and authority, yet God is loving, merciful, righteous. There's this infinite goodness, so power and goodness coming together. We have messed this up. And again and again, he uh, confesses. And so Daniel does not accept the old conundrum. You know, God is great and awesome, infinite power and authority. God is loving and righteous. Things are messed up, therefore something is wrong with God. You've heard that logic often. I've heard that logic often. Why, God, have you allowed? Why, God, is this happening? Why, God, is that happening? And Daniel is going, I will not lay responsibility at your door. We have messed this up. Nothing is wrong with our God. And so this prayer then moves into this confession of collective and historical sin. These words are, we have sinned, we've done wrong, we've been wicked, we've rebelled, we've turned away, we have not listened, we are covered in shame. Now, let me ask you this. Has Daniel been wicked and rebellious and refusing to listen to God? I mean, of all the characters in the Old Testament, he is the one who, about whom we have the most detail and the least dirt. We have the most detail and the least dirt, like, I'm thinking, when did you mess this up, Daniel? Why are you including yourself? You see, the, you see what's going on here? He includes himself. Now, why are you doing this? If ever there's been a guy of faithfulness and obedience, it's been our Daniel. Our Western individualism believes a lie. That we can live and die as individuals explaining the world from the bubble of self. Like if I'm okay, nobody can speak against me. And we don't recognize, according to scripture, that we are intimately, directly connected to one another. Remember when the Lord came to Cain. And he said, where is your brother? Cain's like, am I my brother's keeper? Yes. So Daniel has this deep sense of place. He cares about that location he left as a young man, the city of his forefathers. And he, we've got no sense that he expects to see the city again. But he's absolutely convinced that there is a generation coming after him that will build. 
You know, when you really wanted to build for the kingdom, you are never dealing only with your generation. You are never only serving yourselves. You are always thinking generation after generation after generation. Now work that backwards. If there's sin and trouble, he's going, something happened in the generations before. And so he believes he's connected to kings and princes, to his ancestors, to the people of the land. And these connections transcend time. And he's come to accept and own the story. And this is a really important part of what confession of collective and historical sin requires. It's been a principle that's been very significant for us at PBC in our own diversity journey. This week we celebrate and confess 75 years. Why? Because our legacy is mixed. And if we just try and pretend that it's not, you know, for more than half the time, the members of PBC benefited collectively and individually from the unjust advantages of being exclusively white in our membership and in our context. I mean, you look around today and you think, could that be? But it was. And in 2016, and there'd been a lot going on before that, but the elders collectively took time to stand, walk from congregation to congregation, and lead the church in confession for the sin of excluding women in leadership and excluding any leaders on the basis of race. And that was a very significant time. It was part of a much bigger journey. It's still part of the journey. We have not arrived. Now, there's not a rub noses in it. It's to understand the Daniel principle that when sin enters a space, it takes hold in the social fabric and you have to uproot it socially. You can't just deal with it individually. And so... Daniel understands that even though he probably didn't share in the sin of unfaithfulness and idolatry and disobedience, collectively he is in that space. And collectively there's probably been ways in which he's not even aware it has shaped him. And so he comes to God with his people, for his people, in the generation that he's part of, but recognizing that conduct of the generations before and he owns this confession of collective sin if we want to defend and justify our forebears and proclaim they're always innocent and pure we will allow their sins to grow in our lives now, that's true personally and it's true for us corporately you're frowning at me i promise you this is good stuff it's very important. It's very important in our country. It's very important in our city. And this prayer then appeals to God's name and his nature. This prayer is rising to an incredibly powerful climax. Notice Daniel's prayers. When he gets to praying, it's like the 70 years triggers his prayer. But when he gets to praying, nowhere in his prayer does he mention that he just calls out for the essence of what was promised 
Not so much the timing. He's not saying, God, you're running out of time. I demand, or whatever it is. You said 70 years. I'm going to hold you to your word. Don't use God's promises to find religious leavers. What does he appeal to? He appeals to God's incredible mercy. God, I trust your nature. He's not relying. In fact, he renounces human merit. God, look how repentant we are. Look how oppressed we are. Look how victimized we are. Look how broken we are. Well, he does acknowledge the brokenness. He does say, God, look. But he never implies that they will earn God's grace. He understands that when you trusting in God, you're trusting in his nature, not your performance. This becomes such a critical, critical point as you move to understanding the salvation Jesus brings. True prayer is an appeal to the nature of God and his grace. Here's the peace that this brings. You can never live well enough to earn answered prayer. And still Jesus says, ask, you will receive. Seek, you will find. Knock, the door will be opened. Why? On the basis of his nature. That's who he is. And then this desperate, heart-wrought petition comes for the honor of the Lord's own name. Lord, the nations think less of you. That's his concern. God's name slandered and mocked because of the way his people lived. Lord, please, don't let people look at us and reach a verdict about you. And then he gets this remarkable answer. Now, the answer comes in three things. First, there's a remarkable messenger. Then there's a remarkable mystery. And then there's this remarkable Messiah that's introduced in those last few verses. So first of all, quickly, the messenger, Gabriel, is the man who can fly. I don't know if you, you know, picked that up. <laughs> this was the man I'd seen earlier, but now he comes... And he comes flying at a rate of knots, obviously an angelic being. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll just leave that for now. It's a rabbit that I'm not going to chase, but you've got to smile. There's this remarkable mystery in the timing. I've commented how this could be taken out. I want to remind you of something we said back in, in chapter 2, in weeks 2 and 3. Taking apocalyptic literature almost certain, if you take it literally, almost certainly means you're going to misinterpret it. So he's using seven and 70 and seven. What you need to look for is its meaning within the genre. That's another key way of interpreting. You interpret according to the way, is this poetry, is this history, is this a, is this a parable, or is this apocalyptic? You don't, you know, people say, I take the Bible literally. Well, you're guaranteed to get the meaning wrong in this point, okay? For example, the number seven is the number for fullness and completion. Right since Genesis 1, it means you can rest. It means the work is 
done. It's pointing towards the finish or the completion. Number 70 speaks of totality and inclusion. 70 times 7 speaks of fulfillment, pointing to when the time is right for things to be fulfilled, for things to come to rest, for all things to come to rest. Um, And so Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, for example, that God sent his son in the fullness of time. It almost certainly has this verse in mind, the sevens. That God's son came when the sevens were all ready. So, you know, scholars go back and they try and work out when were the 490 years. Well, let me ask you this. Jesus, Peter, Jesus is asked, how many times ought I to forgive someone? Matthew 18. And he says, not seven times, he says, 70 times seven. Until it's done. Until you finish, until it's complete. So, you know, say Grant does something and makes me grumpy. And he does it again, and he does it again, does it again. And so I keep a ledger. I keep an account. And I forgive him and I love him 400. I forgive him and I love him 450. I forgive him and I love him unconditionally until 468. I forgive him and I love him unconditionally and I reconcile all 469. I forgive him and I love him 470 and 471. I hate him and I cut him out of my life. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Tata my chance, yeah. <laughs> you know, Peter famously said when talking about the final consummation of the kingdom that for God one day is like a thousand years. These were the guys who walked with Jesus. So if you've been schooled in a theology that's told you that they're going to give you a key and you're going to work all this out and you're going to be able to, you know, map it and graph it and, you know, stick Napoleon and Hitler and Putin and whoever else, you know, is the flavor of the day, do yourself a favor and let it go. Of course they're the beasts. British Empire was the beast for 150 years. And so there is mystery, and I'm deliberately using that word, that points to the fulfillment and the completion and and the entering into rest of all things. But in the midst of this is verse... 24, which says this, he will finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy to anoint the most holy one or anoint the most holy place. It can mean either. So the question is, is this describing Antiochus IV? Is this 165 B.C.? And we are seeing the overthrow of that particular Antichrist. 
you have to do some serious exegetical gymnastics to make that stick. Okay? But it is partly true. The offense against God and against the people of God was brought to an end. But did they get everlasting righteousness? Now, these words are way too transcendent. So what do you get? You get a historical event that has a mirror of the spiritual kingdom future. And so what do you get? You get a ruler who was causing chaos, opposing and, and, and persecuting God's people, and he is dealt with. So does this then, remember, look at these words, enter sin, atone for righteousness, anoint. You know, does this word speak to the life, death of Jesus, his triumph over death, his resurrection? Absolutely, definitely, definitely. This is speaking to 2,000 years ago, the scripture was fulfilled. And we looked at how Mark 13 through 16 last week shows us how Jesus is the end of the world 2,000 years ago. And is this describing what lies in our future when Jesus returns? Absolutely. Why? Because we have not brought a complete end to all evil and sin. And so we wait, we long. And so in that verse 24, we find that reclaiming the temple in 165 cannot claim to have fulfilled such a profound outcome. Rather, God's kingdom is given a historical reference point. Evil will be overthrown. Righteousness will be established. And people will recognize that the man sent from God is the Christ, the Son of the living God. As we go to baptisms, there'll be a question. The first question is, do you believe that Jesus is that Messiah? Do you believe that he is the one prophesied and promised who comes to put an end to sin who comes to make things live again, who comes to bring the eternal rest, who comes to restart life as God intended. Do you believe he is the Messiah? Have you received him? You see, the reality of these multiple horizons is that they still hold the same central response. What is required no matter where you are in history, is evident when you understand this applies again and again and again. Not because you're getting an his exact historical reference point. You're getting an image, you're getting a story, but what are you getting? You're getting how to live inside of history no matter where you are. No matter when you are, you're learning how to live. Let's pray together.